I'm Boba Fett. I'm Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. Welcome to our weekly recap and discussion of The Book of Boba Fett, streaming now on Disney+. Two episodes are now available, with new episodes streaming weekly on Wednesdays, until all seven chapters are out. The Book of Boba Fett, like The Mandalorian before it, gives episodes both chapter numbers and names. Chapter 2 is also known as The Tribes of Tatooine. Just like Episode 1's title, I think there's a tie-in there to some biblical meaning, and I'll explain my thoughts on that in a few moments. The brief and main description of the episode were not available to me at 3 a.m. on Wednesday. That's when I watched it. You may have seen me post some pictures to Twitter. But by the time I woke up to bring my daughter to school later that morning, I saw the show's Disney Plus page had been updated. It reads, Boba Fett faces new challengers on Tatooine. I don't care what your tablet says. I have some listener feedback to share, not about the show, but about the book of Boba Fett. Speak freely. I'm not aware if I have permission to share the names of those listeners, so I won't. Normally I just would, but if you don't give me a name, I'm not going to guess so I don't make a mistake or upset you. So the first is an opinion that seems related to the structure of the show. Our listener says, I wasn't impressed. I don't like Boba being trained by the Raiders in a pretty basic fighting style. I hope that it gets away from the Raiders and focuses more on the present. So I think it's fair to have Boba Fett learn something about fighting with the club, and I think it seems like it's going to be limited to that. But that is a very fair point, and a lot of people have expressed that same sentiment that, like, look, let's get the ball rolling here, right? The second listener feedback asks what I thought was a fun question, and I really kind of was excited to explore it. It says, if Boba Fett was a Jedi and had a lightsaber, what color do you think it would be? So I believe there are eight canon colors right now for lightsaber colors. You have black, the dark saber that we saw in The Mandalorian, and red, of course, which is all Sith. Uh, then you have blue, which is a very, very common color. It signifies a Jedi guardian, and Anakin had that color before he was turned. Obi-Wan had that color, of course. There's green, which is considered a Jedi consular color, a student of the Force. Yoda and, of course, Luke had green lightsabers. Then there was purple, which is, I guess, the combination of red and blue. So it was a balance between learning about the dark side and maybe upholding the light side of the Force. So there was some balance there. Mace Windu famously had the purple lightsaber. And, of course, that was created for him. But, you know, it's still canon. Then there's yellow, of course. Jedi Sentinel color. It was famously held by Temple Guards. But also, Rey had a yellow lightsaber by the end of Rise of Skywalker. There's also white. It was a purified Sith red lightsaber. And those are also in canon. Because Ahsoka Tano purified some red lightsabers when she lost hers at the end of the Clone Wars. She needed new ones, so she managed to get her hand on some Sith lightsabers, I guess, and made both of them pure 
and they were a whitish colored lightsaber. But there is one more color, and it was brought into canon by a video game, I believe. And I think this is the color that Boba Fett would have. It's orange. And it was a pre-order edition, I guess, you could get for the Jedi Fallen Order game. But Boba Fett has some orange on his armor, and it's there's a little bit of rage with that red of the orange, and then a little bit of the yellow, which is protector. And I think that's kind of where I see Boba Fett. He's He's got some of that evil in him, but he also has some honor, right? And so I think that red and... I know that doesn't really necessarily... That's not necessarily how Jedi colors come into existence, but that's just kind of how I see it. I think the orange would look good because he has some orange paint on his armor, but it also seems to signify the the evil that is in him from doing <laughs> evil deeds with the crime lords. And then also he does have some honor because that's there's a code that he seems to adhere to. So I think it would be orange. And I wonder what you would think. Please let me know. Comment. Give us feedback. And again, if you have feedback for us, we will share it. Let's talk some fat. Actually, there is one other matter, if I may. Now for a note about This Is The Way Podcast's partnership with Cufflinks.com. The Book of Boba Fett has arrived on Disney+, and Christmas has come and gone. If you missed out on a nice shiny gift, don't worry. You don't need to hire someone through the guild to bring it home. Go to Cufflinks.com and take a look at their sanctuary's many sundry offerings. New bounties pop up all the time, and now they have necklaces to add to their bracelets, cufflinks, socks, and ties. Boba Fett? He doesn't need to be your favorite. Grogu, the Mando, Vader, R2-D2, Yoda, Chewie. There are more than 3,000 licensed accessories made by this small family-run business. Cufflinks.com is the exclusive, officially licensed provider of cufflinks for dozens of top names and not just Star Wars. Browse through a selection of Disney, Dune, Star Trek, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, DC Comics, and fans of our This Is The Way Phase 4 podcast may recall our love for the great selection of Marvel-themed items. Maybe you're looking for top fashion design names or sports-themed items from leagues like MLB, NFL, NCAA, NHL, and the NBA. The men's accessories you'll find are of the highest quality. We're talking tie bars and clips, shirt studs and stays, lapel pins, money clips, pocket squares, socks, ties, necklaces, bracelets, and cufflinks. If you decide to shop, make sure you check out their page for their current deals. And you can enter the way 15 at checkout for 15% off everything in your cart with no minimum to buy. The Way 15 will be available throughout This Is The Way podcast's coverage of the Book of Boba Fett. Whether you want to let everyone know how much of a rebel you are, show off your imperial side, or rule the room with respect, Cufflinks.com has you covered. Check out Cufflinks.com today. I would not be surprised if you receive another delegation in the near future. 
The director for episode two is someone I mentioned in our December news update, Steph Green. She's worked on The Americans, Billions, The Man in the High Castle, Watchmen, Preacher, Luke Cage. I thought that she did a great job. The episode did feel like a true continuation of the story from episode one. And I think in this case it kind of needed to be. I think the show's going to be one complete story arc, and the flashbacks are going to be telling a parallel story. That should certainly be the case if Jon Favreau is the writer of the show throughout all seven episodes. I'm not sure if that's the case, but he gets credit for episode two, just like he did for episode one. I was sitting in church Wednesday night, and I decided I'm going to look up Jon Favreau's faith background. He's a child of two worlds, which I think says a lot about how he approaches characters. It's a lived experience for a kid with a Jewish mother and a Catholic father. Also, he has mentioned how the epic stories of the Old Testament echo in modern movies, and though he did so when he was talking about one of his films that was not so successful, Cowboys and Aliens, it certainly doesn't mean he stopped feeling that way when he approaches stories like The Mandalorian, Iron Man, heck, even Elf. It's for those reasons that I think it is a biblical reference in the first episode title, rather than referencing the sci-fi novel, Strangers in a Strange Land. I think that's the case for episode two as well. The tribes of Tatooine certainly could point to the 12 tribes of Israel, and researching some Bible history, you'll find 10 of those tribes were exiled and basically destroyed through dispersal in the 700s BC by Shalmaneser V. Only two tribes remained intact, Judah and Benjamin in the south. I found some accounts while researching online from Benjamin of Tudela about the possibility that some tribes clung together for a time somewhere in the mountains of Persia, and they were among pagan tribes that worshipped the wind. Now, that's not the same as sand and desert. But it does get me imagining about the experiences of culture and the imagery late in the episode of the tree and water. It certainly feels like something allegorical is going on. It appears as if oppression of the Tuscans as a people, observable for us since the original Star Wars movie, that's what's being mined for story here by Favreau, I think. He himself identifying with an oppressed people group. My thoughts are he may be using the parallel to show us exactly how Fett rules with respect when so many in the story are doubting it's possible. Very well. We have a father figure in the chieftain who Boba Fett aspires to be. We've seen Boba remembering himself as a child many times in his dreams, which is why there's a child Tuscan figure. And then there's the warrior, or who he might have been when he went into the pit. When you look at it that way, the flashback is showing us his growth from simply taking orders from Jabba and Vader to being a man he never got to see because his father died when he was a child. He is both represented by the Tuscan child and taking care of the child. He's both father and son, appropriate since he's a clone of his dad. He is represented by the warrior and also a student of the warrior. He aspires to be the chieftain, and I think we're learning in this show, you know, how he goes from once being the learner to now being the master. 
The way Favreau is approaching it may indeed end up paying off, but each episode that goes by only stretches thin the patience of the casual fan. If Favreau doesn't show Boba putting into practice the lessons he learns in the current timeline as echoes of what he learned from the Tuscans, then those flashbacks are going to prove to just be a waste of time. I trust he will pay off all the symbolism based on my appreciation for what he did to Star Wars for me. I don't think viewers should be expected to know so much about Star Wars lore and legends, though, that they immediately have to be able to see the subtexts and everything that's going on behind the scenes, but it is still early. For example, I didn't know about Black Curse and Tan because I haven't read the Afrocomics, and even though I've seen Solo and the Clone Wars, I didn't realize the Pikes were part of the story until the mention of the Spice. Bringing into live-action canon parts of Legends or current comics can be great if they're there because the story needs it. You know, worlds can collide without disastrous results. Ahsoka and the Pikes were in Season 7, Episode 7 of The Clone Wars, and there was a droid that looked a lot like 88 torturing the Martez sisters. Where is the spice? Okay, look, I'll, uh, I'll tell you where the spice is. You can have your Easter eggs and not ruin the story, but if you need the Easter eggs to tell the story and you don't get it, it can be quite confusing. As usual, though, the credits reveal some Easter eggs, and you might miss them if you only look up at the stars of the show in the credits. Tamara Morrison is back as Boba Fett. Ming-Na Wen is his right-hand assassin, Fennec Shand. Matt Berry voices 8D8, Jabba's droid torturer turned throne room herald. David Peskizi is again doing a wonderful job as the mayor of Mos Espa's major domo. Jennifer Beals is Garza Fwip, and it feels like while her allegiance seems to go with the flow, she is making apologies, not waves here. She's just going to go to the winning side, I, I would say. Carrie Jones is credited, and he did some work on the 2010 movie Predators and plenty of other projects like Walking Dead, Lovecraft Country, and Watchmen and Preacher. I think that's where Steph Green may have worked with him and then put him in the suit for Black Curzontan. Santi, as Dr. Afra calls him in the Marvel Star Wars comic series, is a beast of a bounty hunter. Jones doesn't have a lot of acting credits, but his special effects work is extensive, and sometimes you get the call to wear the suit when it fits. I could not find confirmation of him as the character, but I think that link to Green is enough to suggest that's the case. Paul Darnell is listed as a Nightwind assassin, and like I mentioned last week, we were one of the first to notice this name. It's nice to be right, nice to catch something that not even the other big-name recappers on YouTube caught. So send me a message if you discover that because of us, because I'm kind of proud of that. Frank Trigg and Colin Himes are back as the Gamorrean guards. Galen Howard played the city hall clerk, and he seemed familiar to me. And that might have been because I recognized him as Tommy Boyle on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but I didn't really remember where I saw him from. He also did appear on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We met the mayor this week. And the voice was done by Robert Rodriguez. So he got to be the voice for Doc Strassi and the mayor. It's nice when you're the showrunner, eh? I am available for work. <laughs> voice work. Maybe hold a lightsaber. I'm just saying. Yeah. Good. 
John Rosengrant gets credit for the performance art for the mayor. Chris Bartlett is again listed as Droid Server, though for a guy who has done work as C-3PO, just being a droid server seems like a waste. Joanna Bennett is still the Tuscan warrior. Wesley Kimmel is the Tuscan child again, and Xavier Jimenez is the chieftain just as in week one. Going unmentioned this week will be the Twilight servers, the Hut Letter Drummer, and the Pike Traveler, all named in credits, but I am unaware of any previous ties to Star Wars. Daniel Logan is again credited as young Boba Fett for what appears to be unused scenes from Attack of the Clones. And I'm going to mention the stunt coordinator this week, J.J. Dashnaw, gets main stunt credit for this episode. And he has a history with Rodriguez, working on Grindhouse, from Dust Till Dawn TV series, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, Sockham Dead, and oh, he also worked with John Favreau on Cowboys and Aliens. The tone of it was just right. They really, it was very well observed as far as the Western elements go and the sci-fi. Definitely a change of pace after the Iron Man films. Episode 2 is listed as running 53 minutes, but I don't count the credits or previously on segments. First action to credits for this one is 46 minutes, 40 seconds. But for The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett, I do recommend watching those credits. The concept art gives you a great idea about what the artists envisioned from the script. For instance, in this episode, we're given confirmation. The eyes in the tree are intended to be Jawas. If you don't remember what I'm talking about, it's in the dream sequence. Yeah, it's the second to last concept art credit slate. Take a look. Second, viewing the credits gives you a chance to decompress with the theme music by Ludwig Göransson. Now don't decompress just yet. We have the story to talk about, and when we get back from the break, we will do just that. The Tribes of Tatooine opens on a shot of Jabba's palace. It's a scene we've seen from the trailers, so check another one of those off the list. We've also seen it in Return of the Jedi, C-3PO and R2-D2 approaching the palace, and there's even part that kind of mirrors something that we saw when Luke was coming through the doors. Here, though, it's Fennec with her bounty. Remember, Boba told her to capture one of the assassins alive, and as we saw last week, she did so. It's the same Foot Clan soldier tied up, and he's led through the main gate, that one we saw R2 and C-3PO head through at the beginning of Return of the Jedi. This time, we also get to see out from inside as the door opens and closes, and we don't get a blinding sun in the distance, so we can see the desert through the door. I kind of like the whiteout effect from the movie. It was functional, but, you know, technology is just terrific. It makes the place seem more real when you get to see more of the landscape back there. The captive is brought before the throne, and Boba questions him without success. The guy even curses in Hatiz. Maybe 8D8 watched the credits last week or was listening to our podcast because he knows what we know. This guy is a Nightwind assassin. Apparently, they're expensive. Overpriced. You're paying for the name. Their reputation is legendary. It's repeated a couple of times. These guys don't talk. But Fennec knows about the button. She triggers the trap that we've seen Ula, a Gamorrean, and Luke all fall through. And the platform moves over to give Fett and Shanna a look through the grating. 
Shan presses the button in the mouth of the Rancor on the arm of the throne room chair. So the guy falls through, but waits until the gate is almost all the way up to the Rancor pen before he spills the beans. It was the mayor, he says, and he's pleading, let me out, except there's no Rancor. It's empty. Assassin of the Night Wind. Luke, of course, killed one of the Rancors that Jabba might have had, but certainly there was talk of a menagerie in last episode. He's got other creatures, right? Well, we don't get to see any of them, just some rats. Shall we visit the mayor? This is where we get our second episode title slate, and we learn the name of the episode is called The Tribes of Tatooine. Episode 1's title might have had many meanings, but I'm leaning toward that biblical one after what I read up on about Favreau. He's the writer in Stranger in the Strange Land and The Tribes of Tatooine, plus the heavy lean on humanizing the alien Tusken Raiders makes me think there's something spiritual going on here for Favreau. Boba Fett is walking a few different paths himself, but also there's numerous tribal factions and syndicates all at play for power on Tatooine. There's a power vacuum when Jabba died. Wrangling all the parts is something Boba Fett is not accustomed to doing. What we know of Boba Fett before his fall into the Sarlacc pit is he's an efficient bounty hunter, not a ruler. Out of his captivity, Joseph... (laughs) I mean, Boba Fett might have earned the respect of his captors so much that he's given a respected position. Maybe he saves people with his knowledge. Has dreams. He lost his multicolored armor, of course. But he's dressed in raiment by the chieftain of the Tuscans. Now, allow me just a moment here to say why I like this episode, while so many people I know did not, and why I both understand it and disagree. I believe the parts many think are slow are slow because at this point in time, it's hard to understand them without seeing the full picture. It's hard to see during these trials how things will all come together. What I'm counting on is that there will be a complete story, and it will all tie together. A lot of people have gotten used to binge-watching, and I think not having the full picture available all at once is frustrating to people who enjoy a thing but prefer to read you know, the whole book at once. Here we may be seeing a genius story with parallels, allegories, all weaving together so well by the end, we may marvel at the cleverness of Favreau. Will I be severely disappointed if we get to the end and none of the threads tie together and none of the flashbacks have paid off in a grand reveal? Yeah, absolutely. I get why people say it's slow now, and I will get why people will be upset if nothing pays off. It is slow from a certain point of view. I think, however, by the end, we're going to see these are lessons and experiences that will prove Boba's desire to rule with respect is possible, even if he may not be the one leading at the end. After the title slate, we head back into Mas Espa, all the way to the town hall. On the way, we see several shots of Trandoshans, So maybe this is their quarter of the town, you know, Trandoshan Town? There are other species and plenty of humans, sure, but 
we're shown point-of-view shots of Fennec and Boba noticing the looks of the Trandoshans as they're heading down the street. I think this might tie in to Black, Curse, and Tan later, but I'm not sure. They don't have an appointment, Boba and Fennec, and the City Hall clerk's reaction to them showing up is pretty funny, as is the appearance of the Major Domo. Well, I don't see your name in the schedule, so you'll have to... Um... Pardon the lack of pomp for your entrance. However, I did not see your litter arrive. The importance of making that grand impression on your entrance seems to be something that Fett needs constant reminders about, because politics seem to be lost on him. The Majordomo's trying to run interference gives the somewhat cliche, sorry, the boss isn't in right now, even though he's in the other room, but it doesn't work. Fett and Shan don't threaten, they just walk right past and storm in. They're greeted by the Ithorian mayor we saw in the trailer, so check that off the box. He has a translator, so his utterings are repeated somewhat plainly. Very little emotion in them. And again, the voice is from showrunner Robert Rodriguez. Boba wants to know why the mayor wants him dead, but the mayor does some gaslighting here. He doesn't admit to anything. He just insists that Boba Fett doesn't understand the situation. So the mayor has the Nightwind assassin executed on the spot and suddenly. And then he rewards Boba Fett as if Boba Fett was still a bounty hunter. I am not a bounty hunter. Is that so? I've heard otherwise. The mayor says the assassins aren't supposed to operate outside Hut space. Well, wasn't this at one time Hut space? Boba's put off guard, and personally, I think it's a great job of writing, because it does the same to us. It puts us off guard. We're left to wonder, just as Boba Fett, was this really the mayor's fault? Mak Shaiz admits to nothing. Instead, he plants seeds of doubt. Maybe it was someone else. Maybe you should go to Garza's sanctuary to find out. He knows Boba went there, and he knows about the attacks that happened when he came out of there. He also knows that Boba Fett sits on Jabba's throne and knows he's a bounty hunter by profession, and gives some advice on top of it all. Here is the tribute I offer. Some advice. Running a family is more complicated than bounty hunting. Is that it? There's nothing left for Boba to gain by arguing his case to the mayor. So the mayor skillfully redirects this threat. And that means we have to go off to Garces just like Boba. She seems a little surprised when Boba Fett walks in, but maybe that's another part of the functionality of the litter. You know, to warn people, hey, someone's coming. Honestly, maybe no litter is better. He might catch people in the middle of wrong business doings, but... Maybe that's an unspoken warning that kind of keeps the peace, sort of, you know, just hold it together long enough for Dad to fall asleep so we can get away with stuff arrangement. I did notice that Garza Fwip said, I'll see if I can free up a table after just last episode saying, you know, the, the place is yours. Well, if it's his place, you know, move somebody out of there. But she's kind of like, hey, wait at the bar while I find you a place. Of course, things seem to have changed. And Fett and Shand seem to be the last ones to know. If Garcefwip looks nervous, it might not be because of Boba Fett's line of questions. Now you're sweating like a gumtown Mustafa. You haven't heard. Heard what? 
the twins have laid claim to their late cousin's bequest. The twins are preoccupied with the debauchery of Hutter, to bother with any ambitions on Tatooine. There is a drum beat signaling a litter is arriving. And whoever might these twins be? They are cousins of Jabba. Fraternal twins, one male, one female, whose names we do not know, but it's certainly not Rada or Zero, and thank goodness for that. The litter, because there's two huts on it, is heavy, and it's carried by no less than 18 litter bearers. Some of them human, some alien, and they've got a frog snack bowl, the female has a paper fan, and the male has a rat to wipe the sweat from him. The female seems to have a mole near her mouth, or maybe it's just a jewel because the male has a tattoo and a jewel, like a stud, in his lip. It is not the same tattoo as on Jabba's arm. So the cousins maybe don't belong to the same hut clan? Maybe they're not even cousins. Maybe it's an illegitimate claim. But who cares, right? They're huts. It's possible, since Vader supposedly wipes out the Grand Hut Council in the comic books, that these are just the most prominent members of the families that are left. You know, there was a power vacuum, so maybe it took them time to gather power before laying claim to things that Jabba left behind. Maybe once they got their act together, Bib Fortuna was there, providing tribute to them, so they figured, well, you know, business is operating as it was before, they don't need to come to Tatooine. As Boba says, they're enjoying the debauchery of Nalhada too much. Well, now that there's a new sheriff in town or a new rival, they've decided now's the time to act. To me, all this tracks and makes perfect sense. They likewise seem to know politics better than Boba Fett. Everybody does, right? He's not really trying to be political, though. He knows they're making a claim and says, I don't care. I'm in charge. I killed, you know, the, the guy in charge. Now I'm the guy in charge. You want to be in charge? You kill me. That's when they bring out his old friend, Black Curse and Tan. Now, I didn't know who this was when it appeared. I just was like, oh, that's cool. Look at that giant Wookiee. I admit, I had to look him up, but I did so because I knew that they knew each other. How, you may ask? You can bring as many gladiators as you wish, but these are not the death pits of Durr, and I am not a sleeping Trandoshan god. Well, Boba Fett says the lines about the gladiator and fighting pits and sleeping Trandoshan guards, so it was completely obvious to me that they had a past. It turns out it's a lengthy one that involves Jabba, Vader, and Dr. Aphra, the latter being a comic book character. I know also that there's this blue motorcycle girl that has yet to appear, and the code name for her is Drash? But maybe that's a code name. Maybe this character is actually Aphra. People who read the comic books probably are like, no, you're wrong. But I don't know. I mean, it could be. There's a lot of history between Black, Kirsten Tan, and Boba Fett from the comics. I'm not going to lay it all out here for you. Feel free to do the deep dives on your own. I, I am going to say, though, that though they may be rivals, I got a distinct impression that Boba's words about him were almost like, hey, old friend, you with me, bro? I would not be surprised that the twins hired Kirsten Tan not being aware of the connection that the two hunters had, other than, you know, these guys both worked for Jabba at one point. 
Of course, it could be these two rivals actually do hate each other and that they are going to be at each other's throat and Boba is in for a fight. Hopefully he doesn't lose some arms on the deal, but Santi, as Afra calls him, is a beast. And they give a knowing look to each other at one point. I I loved the character. I hope we get to see some arm ripping. You know, just maybe not Fennec or Boba. When presented with Boba Fett's demands, the Huts decide they're not going to fight it out here. And though I thought I made out the sister was saying something about having the Wookiee kill him, the brother decides against it. I don't know Huttese, though. The male hut also says bloodshed is bad for business, which is similar to the line that Boba Fett used when he was speaking to Din Djarin on Tython when he said there was no need for bloodshed when negotiating the return of his armor. The litter is turned around, but not before the huts tell Boba Fett to sleep lightly. Wiki Chesko, Morishani. Of course, that's kind of how it's been going for him, right? He's been having dreams in the Bacta, and that's when we start our second part of Episode 2. The tank is giving off a sound this time that sounded kind of like when the carbonite was melting with Han. Maybe it's just the brand of heartbeat sensor used in both the carbonite and this Bacta tank that it sounds familiar, though. Seemed like a weird inclusion from the sound editors. But maybe it's got significance. Maybe this back-to-tank stuff is showing that he's coming out a new man. I don't know. Matthew Wood is great, so I'm not going to question it a lot. If Boba is in Bacta, he's back to his flashbacks. So we see him learning the ways of the gaffy stick with the warrior. He's not a novice, but just days earlier, his whole fighting style depended solely on what he could do with his armor. He has spent most of his life in that armor, and now he's a fish out of water. I'm not saying he'd be completely inept, but to me, these scenes make sense. He's learning to use a new weapon. He's learning to use more than his armor. He's learning that he is more than his armor. The Tuscans, while they're doing this, seem to be raking the ground and don't think for one split second I was not going to include this clip. Tell them to comb the desert, do you hear me? Comb the desert! Yes, sir. Sir? What? what? Are we being too literal? No, you fool. We're following orders. We were told to comb the desert, so we're combing it. Found anything yet? Nothing yet, sir. How about you? Not a thing, sir. What about you guys? We ain't found sh- While they're combing the ground, of course, something comes out. I think it's a wart. It's something I found on a visual dictionary map of Tatooine. It says they're large, warty creatures that conceal themselves in desert sands to un- or to await unwary prey. Whatever it is, it becomes food for the massifs when one of the Tuscans shoot it. Then a distant rumble alerts the tribe something massive is approaching, and the sound that's played? It's not exactly the crate dragon sound, but it kind of made me feel like they're trying to make it seem like it might be the crate dragon, and I certainly thought when it was going across the desert that that's what they were setting up, like, hey, the crate dragon's coming. But it's not. It's a train. And the passengers on it open fire on the Banthas and the tribe. 
It's rocketing past. It's a rocket train, which begs the question for me, why didn't the people on it just fly in the ship? It seems much safer to do that. You avoid all the troubles of the Doom Sea. You avoid the sand pits with monsters, raiders, crate dragons, biker gangs, all of it. It seems like a spaceship would be faster, cheaper, less dangerous. But of course, it wouldn't fit the Lawrence of Arabia or Western train heist vibe that they're going for. This is one of those things. I know it's silly. I'm okay with it. Maybe there's even a story reason for it having to go by ground, but there are no tracks. It's just a rocket-powered train going across the sand. The shots from the train inflict heavy casualties, and Boba is upset. He's grown to care about the tribe that has taken him in. I don't know how long he's been with the tribe now, but he's still in his white jumpsuit and only slightly less you know, acidically scarred on his face. Not much but slightly less. The tribe burns the bodies of the slain Tuscans on a pyre in the night, solemnly. Boba happens to notice a speeder gang in the dark from last episode, I think. They're speeding by in the night, and he rushes to the chieftain asking for a rifle and a stick because he's got an idea. I know how I'm going to stop this crazy train because that's how it goes. All these sand people living as foes. Yeah, 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 I know. That was kind of bad. Anyway, the bikers head to Tashi Station. How do I know this? Well, I didn't. I most definitely did not. This place is from a deleted scene, which I have seen years ago, but it was cut by Lucas from the original Star Wars. By Lucas, I mean, of course, Academy Award-winning director, I mean editor, sorry, Marsha. Lucas, George's then wife. You know, she's the editor on the movie. I have to I have to say, I agree with the cut. Some people love it, but this is the famed Tashi station that Luke mentions. In the bar, faithfully recreated here for this show, happened to be some friends of Luke's. I did notice Cammy's name in the closed captioning, so this was an easy find for me. And then Fixer is his name in the credits, also known as Lays Lazerner or something, I suppose. I'm fine with these cameos here. This is the kind of thing I want. I don't want these guys being integral to the story, but I do like that we're seeing Easter eggs. These this is the appropriate way to introduce an Easter egg to me. Cami and Fixer are there, and they're bullied by the Nikto gang, the biker speeder gang. And I think based on the symbol that they drew last episode and then the orabesh on their colors that the symbol drawn last episode was an orabesh T standing for Tatooine, like the Tatooine Speeder Club. Everything's there from the deleted scenes, it seems. The video game table, the glass windows, the scene is both to show us that Boba Fett has learned how to fight and see his savagery, but also to give us this wink and nod to people who know about this stuff from Legends and from the deleted scene. He had to do something to help the tribe, right? So this serves as a double purpose. You include Cami and Fixer as bar patrons. They're getting harassed. Fett beats up the gang. He even breaks the rifle in the process. You know, the technology, He's he breaks it over the guy's back. And he's left with just this gaffy stick. That's when he seems 
like he comes alive. You can't see the menace in his face when he has his helmet on, but he looks terrifying here. Imagine Maori warriors screaming and glaring at you like that on a battlefield. So he clears the, <laughs> he takes a drink, clears the bar, walks outside, and sees the speeders. To me, it's almost like he's inspecting them like Arnold did in the Terminator. You know, he picks out the best ride for himself. But I was wondering, is he only going to take one? He doesn't. He ties them all together and heads back to the camp the next day. Continuity problem for me, though. So he sees them on speeders at night. Walks to Tashi Station. Beats them up, and then on a speeder bike, it takes him until the suns are well up to get back. Again, I, I'm letting things like this slide when I'm enjoying myself. A gift for you. Whoa, stop, stop, no! No, stop! These are mine! These are mine! Stop! These are mine! Boba presents the speeders as a gift to the chief, but to lighten the mood for us, we see the Tuscans see the speeders only as scrap metal, not for the tools and service that they're intended to provide, but with shots for them to stop. And he promises, I'm going to teach you how to ride. Like a bantha. Yes? <laughs> I notice like a bantha is already a meme. Uh, the teaching montage is both humorous, but also necessary if you want me to believe that they could use them and end up using them well. This could conceivably be several weeks of training, although I don't know where they're getting the fuel for those things is, but the train scenes we see may seem far-fetched, but we do have the possibility maybe Boba Fett planned this out really well and trained them really well. After the montage ends, we get another training sequence with the warrior and Fett and the gaffy sticks, and we also get the impression that he's much further along in his gaffy stick training as well. This leads into the train approach, and the plan kicks off. Boba and several of the Tuscans ride in, hook onto the train, and climb on top. There's no tunnel sequence here, which I'm thankful we don't get, I guess. I, I don't know. Imagine this train running straight through a hole dug by a crate dragon, and then driving right through a crate dragon. I guess it depends how you do it. I mean, probably everyone on the outside of the thing gets dissolved by the acid, right? We already had that with the Sarlacc. I don't know. The heist action sequence, it's, it's fun. We get to showcase Boba Fett and the Tusken Warrior. You know, they're facing off with the train guards, not being overmatched, not having an easy path to victory, but succeeding. We also meet this train conducting droid. I don't believe it has a name. But that thing didn't seem really out of place to me. It, it was cool. Multi-armed droid locking the thruster into boost mode. Or at least that's what I deciphered off the Oribesh display panels. We get a nice shot of the Dune Sea. A huge herd of Banthas, which kind of evoked trains heading west in the U.S. among the buffaloes for me. The droid jumps ship when Boba confronts it in the engineering car. It survives a high-speed jump and tumble, and then it crawls off like a spider. Well, at least that's what it looked like to me. It only had four arms, though. The core is critical, the fuel core, and the train is out of control. Boba, once again, has to use his gaffy stick, and he does so 
in the nick of time, applying the brakes to the train, stopping the fuel core from overloading, I guess, and he brings the train to a stop in the sands. I wonder, is this reliance on the stick going to find him at the very end of the story having to fight, having lost his armor once again? You know, or maybe his armor malfunctions. You know, he's the underdog. And then he triumphs by embracing this combat style he's learning here. Maybe that's how it ends. Maybe that's why we're seeing it here. It all seems to be about the stick. <laughs> After the train comes to a rest and the Tuscans start looting the train, we see the tribe has taken the passengers prisoner. Boba is sitting on some crates. Apparently he's the man in charge here. He, no, he's not usurping the chieftain, but he's kind of acting on his behalf. It's almost like he's like, hey dad, let me let me handle this. And let you know, see if I do this right. He's the go-between between this group and the tribe. This group is the Pike Syndicate. They're running spice across Tatooine. I have seen Solo, and I didn't know who it was until the Pike in charge took off the mask, and then there was the talk of spice from Kessel. Then I figured out, okay. It's the bikes. What we are witness to is the brokering of a deal between two tribes of Tatooine, the native one from the planet, and this crime syndicate from off-world. A deal is reached, and it is Boba Fett who sets the terms. The pikes are going to pay a tribute for safe passage in the future. They're no longer going to harm the tribes from the train, or they're going to be back tenfold. They are each given... Each member of the Pikes is given a black melon, which is what the Tuscans have been digging to use for drink, and they're told, march off toward Anchorhead. The Pikes say they thought them uncivilized, but I don't know how Boba can honestly represent that they are with the way the tribe wastes that water from the water car. It seems like there's very little that they gain from the raid on the train, but the water seems to be the big thing, and look how they're wasting it. I'm not sure if the syndicate is going to end up holding its end of the bargain, but it's represented that they will. But we'll be killed. You now travel under the protection of the Tuscans. No harm will come of you. We will die of thirst without our water car. We will give you each a black melon. You will survive on its milk, as these people do. It's cause for celebration, which brings us to the final act of episode two. Boba Fett is present at a special meeting around a campfire in a tent. It's here we get live-action confirmation that Tatooine was once an ocean world, but it has dried up sometime in the far, far past. I think there's some Legends material that suggests an alien race bombed the planet to get rid of the oceans, but the Chief clearly just suggested that it dried up, and the tribes have mostly tried to stay hidden a couple of them making a bad name for them all by being warlike. The chieftain decries the off-worlders and their technology, but Boba Fett says, hey, use the technology that you now have. And you also know the Dune Sea, so things are going to go well from here on out. The chieftain says he's a good guide and that he has a gift. Boba Fett's a little surprised, a little he's humble about it, but he's going to get a guide of his own. This felt like a little Dances with Wolves all the way up until the present is presented. It's a lizard. 
if you have seen the episode, which I hope you have this far in, there's a moment where you think, like, oh, how cute. Boba Fett has a Pascal or a Bruni. And if you don't know, those are Disney princess pets. And I know that because I have two young daughters. Well, this ain't no chameleon here. Whatever this lizard is, the spice blown into Boba's face by the chieftain sees the lizard leap onto Boba's face and up his nose. I think I swallowed it. He didn't swallow it. It crawled, I guess, into his sinus cavity, and then maybe it's doing something to his brain? But what could it possibly be doing in there? I I guess I don't really want to know. This is where the fever dream, the acid trip, the spice vision quest starts. And things start to take shape for him by losing shape. His vision, in our view, gets blurry. And then echoes start to occur. Echoes, eh? I think this is kind of what he means when he told Fennec, you know, my dreams are back. He starts to hallucinate. At some point, I guess he must have wandered out of the tent, because we see him walking in the desert at night. Apparently, brain lizard at the helm. He's stumbling and imagines himself in his armor. He collapses to the sands, picks up his head to see a large leaveless tree, and then a smaller one beside it. But it's not just in the desert. There are rolling waves and a cloudy, stormy sky. He approaches the tree from dry ground, it appears, and he reaches it, starts looking up into the tree, and he sees the red eye of Jawas. The only way I could be sure that that's what those were, the red eyes of Jawas, was as a result of the concept art at the end of the episode. He touches the tree and it starts to wrap around him, the branches grasping at him and circling him in a way that seems to evoke for him and show us that he seems to still be in the Sarlacc. You know, he's in his armor trying to get out, grasping, struggling before, I guess, his eventually descent into the stomach of the Sarlacc, where we saw him at the beginning of episode one. It alternates between him being in his armor and without his armor. He's in his white jumpsuit then, but he's in the Sarlacc. Then we see young Boba Fett looking into his father's helmet and seeing his face, his adult face, reflected back in the visor. It dissolves to a new scene where there are also storms and a rocking ocean, but it is him on Camino now watching his father's ship fly away. So there was the rollicking storm on Tatooine, and now he's in Cam- on Camino. This time... His young face is reflected on the glass of his room there on Camino, and a small hand reaches out and touches the glass. Now, though, it's over, or superimposed, over Boba Fett's armored arm reaching out from the sand as we saw in Episode 1. He's freeing himself from the Sarlacc, pulling himself to the surface. We see him struggling still with the branches of the tree. He finally grabs hold of a large branch, and it alternates back and forth between his armored self and unarmored Tuscan camp self, and he manages to break the branch in two, and the water crashes together, seemingly wiping him and the tree away. I don't know. what Did, did something like this really happen, and he's just on drugs, and he just broke a branch off the tree? Is all this in his mind? Well, he wanders back to camp somehow carrying a freshly broken branch of that tree. It seems his brain lizard is no longer needed, so the chief recages it. Oh, 
thought he was part of the dream. I don't feel like the levity of the lizard undercuts the scene, but maybe for some people it does. I don't know. He presents the branch to the chief and the warrior, and they observe it's good. The scene moves to a tent where he's out of his jumpsuit and already in black comma pants, and the way he has his arms out reminded me of the scene in episode one where he's getting his armor put on by the droids. It's not the same, but it's similar. At that time, it was a staccato, abrupt sequence, almost violent, him putting on his armor. This was peaceful, slow, ceremonial. That's what this is. It's a ceremony. When he emerges from the tent, as we see him in the Mandalorian episodes 9 and 14, this is only the cosmetic part of the ceremony. Next on his initiation rites set list is making his weapon. It's like a Jedi. He went on a quest for the integral part of the weapon, but retrieving that branch, like retrieving a kyber crystal on Ilum, is not enough. He's going to have to take part in making his weapon. He's going to shape it and decorate it. His mentor, the warrior Tuscan, approves of his final product, and it's time for the last part of the initiation. He attends a meeting around a fire, the circle of Tuscans allowing him to pass into the inner ring, near the fire, where he and the warrior start to dance. Not just dance, but dance with their weapons. This is a ceremonial dance. Knowing Temuera Morrison's background, I couldn't help wonder if elements of this were taken from the Maori native New Zealander cultures, perhaps the Hakka dance, you know? Maybe some other ancient cultures too? The only face we can see emoting, of course, is Thames. At several points, he has that fierce Hakka look on his face. The entire group joins in. They're marching around the circle over and over, repeating the same movements. A circular path of time, maybe of the world around the suns, the Tatooine around the suns. And then the Tuscans howl, it cuts to black before the credits begin, and the concept art begins to appear. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I've enjoyed both chapters so far, but as I mentioned, I think the leash gets a little shorter and shorter for me each week until we see where things are going. There's only seven episodes and five to go. The bar gets higher, the stakes more severe. The expectations are greater with each episode because if you're going to mess with Boba Fett, you better treat him right. After seeing how this has gone, though, I don't think it's possible for us to ever see a long look at post-Jedi Luke's life. There's just way too much pressure. There's not enough payoff for telling the story that needs to be told. And now that the end of that has been told, building a story for him would be cheapened by his choices. I'm talking about Luke. So... You know, I and this story, my ideas of Bacta being responsible for his dreams, I, I think they went out with the spice when it was blown in Boba Fett's face. You know, now the lizard and the drugs being triggered by Bacta are much more likely culprits for the dreams than just Bacta alone. I wonder if we're going to head to Nal Hutta or Nar Shada or Canto Bite. I'd expect the meaning of Crime Lord scene we got in trailers is going to happen by next episode. Because I can't imagine they're going to make us wait much longer for scenes from trailers. I could 
totally see Drash, that blue motorcycle girl, appearing at the very end of the episode as a cliffhanger. Like, who's this approaching? And then we have to wait until episode four to find out. Now that we've seen Boba Fett in the outfit he wore in the reveal at the end of Chapter 9 of The Mandalorian, we don't have much left to learn about his time with the Tuscans, unless there's some meeting of the tribes, just like he's going to meet with the crime lords. Maybe they continue. Maybe he has to rein in the influences of the other warlike tribes. And maybe the warrior meets her end in combat. Or maybe the chieftain or the child do. Maybe there's some price to pay. What will it be that will cause him to leave the peace behind? And will we see what he was doing while Din Djarin and Cobb Vanth were killing that crate dragon? You know, he spent five years on Tatooine. Did he spend them all with this tribe? It's enough that he learned his club and staff technique from the warrior, but, you know, we're not going to need to see an interspecies romance that keeps him there. And we're not going to need to see behind the Tuscan wraps. I just can't imagine there's much left there to mine. Maybe there is, and if John Favreau does it, then I I trust that I'm going to figure it out and that I'll understand it, and I'll try to explain it if it's there. But perhaps we come full circle by the end of next episode, and we see him coming upon Fennec Shand at the end of Chapter 5 of The Mandalorian, and then maybe witness The Mandalorian riding away with his armor in Chapter 9. Maybe all that kind of stuff happens in the next episode. There's a lot more that can happen, but there's only five more episodes to make it happen. This is Mos Espa, and I am Daimyo here. Please support our sponsors and check out the merchandise at cufflinks.com. And if you decide to shop, remember that 15% off site-wide code, THEWAY15. Everything on the site is 15% off with that code. And it's available until our coverage of this first season of The Book of Boba Fett comes to a close. Thank you very much to cufflinks.com for that promise and the way 15 coupon code. Email us. This is the way podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at this is the way pod or on facebook.com at slash this is the way pod. The book of Boba Fett chapter three starts streaming Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. Until then, I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. May the Force be with you. Always. Always.